Emily Weinstein, welcome to China Talk. Thank you. So first, let's start off talking about the importance of open source research with regards to Chinese technology. Honestly, with just a few tools in your toolbox, the open source the open source information on China and Chinese technology and everything is actually chock full of wonderful finds. We like to kind of say that the Chinese use Chinese language as like this first level of encryption. They think honestly that other people can't read Chinese. And so therefore you end up finding a treasure trove of information if you just know what terms to use in Chinese to search. Well, and I, I, I want to stay on that point for, for one second because mm -hmm. it's true. And not a lot. I mean, there aren't a lot of Emily Weinstein's in the world doing the sort of research that you're doing, looking into these questions. There is a trade-off, right, between putting all of these sort of like policy documents in a classified system and, you know, re reducing the flow of information. And, and we've done past episodes about how hard it is to sort of like signal bureaucracies to do something in, in, a, in a country as big in, as China. It's not like these Chinese bureaucrats are dumb, right? But I think the, the sort of thinking that they have, which I sort of buy, is that, okay, there are 10 or 15, like, Emily Weinstein-type analysts around the world, but the benefit we have of being able to publish, you know, a Made in China 2025 plan and, like, have every, you know, Mishu at every level of the government, the payoff is higher. Yeah, no, I think that's totally the case. And I've talked to some other folks at CSET who have worked in U.S. government for years, and, you know, I come at these issues as someone who understands, honestly, the Chinese system better than the U.S. system. But I've talked to some of my colleagues and supervisors at CSET, and they say the same thing about the U.S. government. There are, there's also a treasure trove of things that the U.S. government publishes that other countries, both adversarial and friendly, can find and, you know, dig through and kind of go to town on. I mean, one of the things we joke about is the U.S. has a, like, a policy strategy document for every single concept, department, you know, anything. And we yeah. publish them. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not just a Chinese thing, but it's definitely, if you have the Chinese language capabilities, you can find anything. How did you begin your process of understanding how to decipher these things? So I had great mentors for this. I ended up having to kind of learn how to dig through things like Chinese company annual reports or, you know, company websites or... Who knows what else? But beyond being able to do the searches, you start to kind of learn where you can find the most authoritative documents. Author well, I say authoritative, also, you know, credible, reliable. So, you know, it's your things versus, you know, Sina, which has great information, great news documents, everything like that. But something like Sina versus something that's coming from People's Daily. How do you weigh which is more credible or authoritative? I think that's one of the things, too, that you can't necessarily teach someone. It's something you kind of have to learn as you're going through the open source Internet. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting just sort of like thinking about this in the U.S. context. And, you know, the answer isn't always trust the New York Times. Right. And it's the same thing in 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 China, where like Remy Rabao isn't always going to give you all the answers. And there are many other voices in the space from like random commentators who have their own WeChat channels to like some professor at some like third tier National Defense University who happens to have some interesting ideas versus like Wang Jisa. And all those levels sort of like add up to a picture. And it, you sort of intuitively, if you're someone who follows the news in the US, you sort of intuitively understand that 
every sort of slice of that like information pie has utility, right? Yeah. And I would have loved to take a course on this in undergrad. I am still waiting for someone to make the Coursera version of this yeah, so I can take this amazing? course. But you know, it, it, in the meantime, it's 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 really unfortunate, and it's like it's interesting because I feel like I've sort of built up that muscle for U.S. politics at least, but it's taken me, you know, 10 years of obsessively reading about, yeah. you know, what what all, senior administration officials are saying off the record and doing that in Mandarin, like in, in a language I like, I'm pretty good at, but I, I will not pick up like the fluencies of the intonations and in John Boehner's voice when he's talking yeah. about what he's thinking about the debt ceiling or whatever. And, and yeah. there are some things for which you were pointing, you were talking to about the policy documents, like where... It's obvious enough, and there's so little reporting in the West that you don't need to that to have that level of nuance, right? But there are things, there are certain questions where you really do. Yeah. Well, and I will say, too, we just had a great session by our translation head at CSET, Ben Murphy, who has worked in understanding the nuance of Chinese language for years. And he just did a whole session on how to understand Chinese media and looking at how do you, if you have an article from Global Times versus an article from People's Daily versus something from Xinhua, like how do you judge which is the most authoritative or credible source? And even if something is not authoritative or from the mouth of the Chinese Communist Party, the fact that everything is subject to propaganda departments or anything like that, there's that, like you said, the nuance there that you know allows you to paint a bigger picture of what you're reading. But yeah, if someone, I mean... I, I would say, Ben Murphy, if you're listening, you should be the one to design a course. But it's it takes dedication and it takes a really strong understanding of the Chinese language because I, I know, I'm sure you've seen, there are so many Chinese articles that start off with a Chengyu or have some very like prosaic title or something like that, that if you just go to Google Translate, you're gonna be like, I have no idea what this is saying. But someone yeah. who has studied the Chinese language is really like, oh, I see what they're hitting on and, you know, Chengyus have historical context and things like that. It's really like there are multiple layers. Coming back to the Google Translate thing, because I think it's this is sort of the dirty secret of non-native speakers, even who have pretty good Chinese who do this sort of work, myself included, is that, you know, these sorts of platforms are are incredibly useful. The one I found recently, I asked them to to advertise on the on the show and they said no, but whatever, I'll shout them out anyways deepl.com i've personally found to be fantastic they also have this thing where they <laughs> as emily takes out her pen they have this way where you can upload pdfs and then they translate it like they maintain the formatting so like wow. usually if you so yeah so if you do google translate with documents right it just like spits out this piece of you know 12 point font which yeah. is sort of hard to skim right because like if you want to do a newspaper the charts disappear or whatever but maintaining the 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 you know the font sizes and everything makes it a lot easier to go through more documents yeah, more definitely. so shout out to deep l and their and their machine learning team i think they're doing a great job but you know you talked about the limits of machine translated research but what what good can it bring folks who don't have super fluent chinese yeah, no, I would say that over the past decade, Google Translate has become a much better resource for people trying to use it for understanding Chinese. I remember back in undergrad and even in high school when I was taking Chinese, every Chinese teacher, professor, anyone that I had would say, do not use Google Translate. And it even got to the point where a lot of the Chinese teachers and professors that I had were able to recognize 
if a student had used Google Translate because Google Translate used very like specific terms and things yeah. like it got caught up on specific things that professors were able to pick up on. So I will say it's been a few years since then, but Google Translate has it's gotten funny, a lot Emily, even like. I remember like I remember like three years ago when my Chinese was really bad, I wanted to say some like complicated thought on Pangyotren and I Google translated it and everyone's like, Jordan, what the fuck? And so now I just exactly. like, have, me, have me and my errors on Pangyotren and whatever people can correct me is fine. Yes. Uh, but no, yeah, you're but totally you're totally right. Yeah, it has gotten a lot better. And I think Google Google actually used some crowdsourcing to help with that. I remember a few years back I used to start I started getting requests from Google to be like, Hey, you just translated this. Can you rate our translation? Can you fix it? Can you do things like that? Which is awesome. And, you know, I am not necessarily the best person to help with some of that, but there were a few cases where I was like, oh, that's a little weird. Or, you know, I think Google Translate is really picking up on some more colloquialisms in Chinese, which is fantastic. But yeah, like things like Chung Yu's, which are like these four character, very prosaic, literary, they're almost, they're pretty much idioms. Google Translate has a hard time with those. Some of them, it gets the more common ones, but I've plugged some in and I'm like, I, I get responses that I'm like that, that can't be right. And that's yeah. when you have to go to something like Pleco or something like MDBG Chinese dictionary, which is one I've used for like a decade at this point. Those are usually the go-tos for understanding the more nuanced terms. Yeah. I mean, someone at some point is going to build the like super translator, which sort of has the nuance built in and it's not it doesn't do word for word but it says like you know has click through links and you could pop it up and then it'll show you all the past speeches and you know just give you like the machine learning like china open source analysis brain with you um yes which the will market be really is awesome. right for something like that well i mean we'll see how big the market is but the market within the you know 20 analysts at cset and yes, um yeah, I guess growing um, number of uh, folks in the in IC who are worrying about this stuff, particularly as you know they're having to make the transition from you know mostly doing counterterrorism stuff, and you have all these folks who are very experienced but have spent their entire lives looking, you know, tracking down folks in rural Afghanistan. Having a sort of onboarding tool which allows them to do this open source research is going to be really important. Back in Beijing, Smart Air, a science-based social enterprise which produces affordable air filters, was a lifesaver keeping my lungs safe in the dog days of 300 AQI after 300 AQI day. Back when I moved to New York, I figured I didn't have to worry about air quality anymore. But to my dismay, my phone kept getting alerts about 100 plus AQI days. At first, I was a little hesitant because some of Smart Air's old models aren't the sleekest, but they just launched this new Square air purifier which is just as effective and quiet as the old standbys, but much more stylish. It sells for $200, but for a limited time, you can use the code CHINATALK to get 5% off. They have offices across Asia, including China and India. They also ship worldwide. I just got one sent to the US, and it is both prettier and more effective than the wire cutter's recommended air filter, which is sold out on Amazon anyways. Perfect gift for your family to keep their lungs healthy. Plus, the smarter guys have shown that purifiers can also filter out COVID-19, which is obviously a big plus. Check them out at smartairfilter.com and use the code CHINATALK for a discount. So coming back to the power of open source research, it seems to me that sort of the, the biggest proof of concept, I guess, over the past few years has been the ongoing revelations and exposure of what's uh, the camps in Xinjiang. And you have had like the New York Times have these leaked documents, but most of what has come out has been 
public source stuff, which entrepreneurial people have just been going on, you know, party websites and and requests for literally building these camps, right? Which anyone can buy to around and look at. So what what does that tell you about the the utility of this this method as a tool for understanding China? I think like you said, it validates how important this type of research is. I think there's this misunderstanding that the Chinese government is like other governments and is not going to be as, you know, is not going to be publishing these things. Like the people think that it's going to be some big hidden state secret. And I don't know if that has maybe caused people to not even want to start doing the, cert- the, the research or if I don't know what the rationale was, but even just doing some quick searches. And as uh, again, like I said, as long as you know some really specific terms, and I mean, you don't have to be a China analyst to be able to go on to a dictionary and look up the, you know, the term, like in the case of Xinjiang, concentration camp, what a Chinese use for that. Or, you know, how to say Uyghur, Uyghur in Chinese or anything, you know, that, that applies to this case. You plug in a, f- a few words in Google or in Baidu or things like that. And as long as you know, one of my other important things that I tell all new China analysts, if you want to do research in Chinese, you need to use quotations in your Google searches because Google is not smart enough to know where to like connect <laughs> characters and you will get weird searches if you don't. So quick side note there, but if you plug in some key search terms, you will find more than you think you would ever find. In the case of a lot of work with Xinjiang, Sean Zhang, who is from Vancouver, he was the one who did some unbelievable geospatial imagery searching on these camps in Xinjiang. He ended up publishing document after document of, you know, showing kind of the progress of these camps being built all via open source. And I will say that is there's another skill to that being able to do, you know, geospatial imagery searching via Baidu maps or Google maps. And I, you know, I am not as much of an expert in that um, as he is, but his work was unbelievable. And I will say to shout out to Vicky at Aspie for the work that she's done on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, the report Uyghurs for Sale. I, I helped her a little bit with that project. But most of the methodology I learned from her and she goes out and she knows exactly what to look for. And again, it's all about kind of knowing what types of documents you're looking for. So in the case of the Uyghurs for Sale report, we were looking for things from these kind of smaller companies, like these factories, things like that, that on on the surface, if you do a Google search just for the company, you get very little information. It's a very like, you know, municipal level, rural kind of company that five layers up there might be a parent that you've heard of before, but otherwise you never would have come across this company. And you do some searches And again, you're going to find some of those really interesting terms. And, you know, they're not going to come out and say concentration camp. They're not going to say forced labor. They're not going to do anything like that. But if you understand the nuance of the terms that China might use, like, I mean, they don't say re-education, but they talk about patriotic education or they talk Mm -hmm. about teaching people Mandarin. And with the understanding that when they say that they're teaching Uyghurs Mandarin, when you have the policy background or when you have the kind of contextual background to that, you understand that, okay, they're teaching them Mandarin because they don't want them to speak their native language. So it's, again, you have to, you know, go in with, I would say, a basic understanding of what the Chinese government is looking to do. And then with that, you can shape your search terms to find really interesting things. I I think... Well, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to throw this on Ben. We're going to throw this back on you, Emily, because I, I, you know, I have fairly regular conversations with China talk listeners and, you know, who are, who are an undergrad or in grad school. And they're like, what should I write my paper about? And 
my answer to them is like it's not the topic it's the methods and i think if like cset or other think tanks would add because there are so few think tanks that like actually use chinese sources in the first place and anyone who's in a public policy grad school program can write like the think tank piece which sort of summarizes what's around in english but i think if you guys sort of just add you know two paragraphs of how we got there sort of like a sources and methods thing and my sense is that it's so like it's so straightforward that this isn't yes. something that would end it end up being sort of like reverse engineered out of existence because you're literally just searching for terms right yeah and we um, actually so i wrote a, a piece earlier this summer with my colleague at cset ryan fadashik entitled overseas professionals and technology transfer to china and in that report at the end we actually have an appendix there where we added a chart that includes all of the Chinese search terms that we used to kind of oh. figure out our searches and kind of how we came about to our findings. We did that, like you said, to make this so that people can go out and use our methodology and make it as you know replicable as possible. So rec I, I highly recommend people to kind of go ahead and check out those terms there. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's just some key terms that we thought were really important for others to know if they wanted to try this searching. Well, Emily, thank you for underhandedly calling me out for not getting no to your appendix. Worries. But anyways, let's no talk worries. about the let's talk about the paper. So Chinese talent strategy. What's what's the overall government approach? As far as talent strategy goes, the Chinese are so or I should say Beijing and the Chinese government are really focused on avoiding the brain drain. This has been something that China has struggled with over the past at this point, what, five decades almost since the reform and opening up period where they've let Chinese citizens go out and get an education from abroad. But, you know, a lot of times people, you know, they go off to the United States, they go off to Europe, Australia, and they stay there. And that, and the Chinese government is really concerned about this. So they have been working on this issue, like I said, for decades. And so what this has turned into is the development of things like talent programs that incentivize Chinese individuals, part of, you know, Chinese citizens, people that are members of the Chinese diaspora, and in some cases, even people that aren't Chinese, just foreigners who are really good at what they do. All these programs have been designed to incentivize them to come to China and contribute to Chinese innovation, Chinese science and technology development, and so on. At this point, everyone and their mother has heard of Thousand Talents program. It's kind of the one that comes up a lot these days. You know, it came up in the context of the indictment of Dr. Charles Lieber at Harvard, and it's come up in a few other cases. But Thousand Talents is kind of like the quintessential example of what this is. So it involves someone who is, again, of Chinese descent or not necessarily of Chinese descent being recruited because they work in something that's of interest to the Chinese government. So in the case of Charles Lieber, we've got the head of the chemistry department at Harvard, who clearly has a wealth of knowledge on, you know, interesting molecules. aspects of chemistry, molecules, whatever else. <laughs> I'm not a science person. I understand science policy, not the actual science. I usually go to the experts for that. But so China works to make contact with these individuals and recruit them to come and work in China. And with the case of Dr. Lieber, he was actually recruited to work at the Wuhan University of Technology. And one of the big things that comes up in talent programs is what type of incentives they give people. So in the case of, I keep pulling up Dr. Lieber, but he was making 50,000 US dollars a month from Wuhan University of Technology. Besides that, we've seen talent programs give preference. It's funny because like, it, it, it's funny, it's funny, Emily, because like, sometimes the Chinese government is really cheap. And sometimes they're like more than happy. Talent to spend is a ton of not money. where they're cheap. Yes, I was going to say they will do, they will pull out the red carpet for talent. So besides like, you know, bonuses and big salaries, they'll give people 
preferential access to visas, try and get people to get permanent residency in China, which is extremely difficult for a foreigner. They help you if you come with your spouse or partner. They'll find jobs for your spouse or partner. They will give you housing. They will help you find schooling for your children. They do whatever they can to get you to come to China and feel comfortable and work at you know this university that they want. First off, like Emily, like which program is like the primo one, and what's like the sort of knockoff? Like this is so lame. I don't even want to be considered for this talent program. Talent program. So honestly, in the ones that I've come across, they all sound pretty great up front. Some of them require more work than others. So some of them are more like an award. So like you get an award, you get a big lump sum of money, you get a comfy job at a Chinese university, and you don't really have to do much. But there are others like I like to throw out the Changjiang Scholars Program or the Yangtze River Scholars Program as one that requires a little bit more effort because that program actually, besides you know getting you know, you get funding for a lab, you get a research associate, you get you know whatever you want. But you also have to go out and try and recruit other Changjiang scholars. So it, it requires more work than some of the other kind of cushier lump sum awards that you get. And we've、yeah. seen actually cases where, like, you can find actually in the talent program tracker that CSET just published on the Changjiang scholars thing, it actually says in there explicitly in the application procedures that you need to be prepared to recruit others to participate. So yeah, a little more work on the back end, I would say. Sure. There's an interpretation of this which I think people skip over in the West, which is that here's a country that has a ton of people that is trying to improve its university system, which as of 15 years ago was a complete backwater, and any country would be doing the same things. I mean, your own Tina Huang we had on earlier this year, she wrote a whole report about like all the different incentives that all these Western countries are doing to compete for talent with regards to sort of like doing immigration, making immigration easier for PhDs and people who want to start companies and whatever. So, I think it's like a legitimate thing to compete to have. Best professors in the world join、Absolutely. your university system, and you know, teach the next generation of grad students who presumably will go on to found companies and have innovations in cancer research and learn about whatever doctor molecules Doctor Lieber knows a lot about. So why can't people just say, okay, great, good for them? Maybe we should pay our university professors more so they don't do this sort of stuff. Yeah. So the problem with Chinese talent programs, as opposed to you know trying to get. You know, like what you said with you know, we want in the U.S. We want people to come from all over the world to contribute to our system, our developments. The problem with Chinese talent programs is the lack of transparency. So, the big issue that comes up in these, and if you look through the DOJ China initiative and some of the recent indictments, most of the people that participate in these talent programs, there's some element of obfuscating information. So, in cases, for example, where we see people coming、um, and applying for student visas or scholar visas, like Visas like、uh, F and J visas. There have been a lot of cases of visa fraud where people aren't upfront with actually, you know, who they work for. And in some cases, that's the Chinese military or something else. But those come up a lot in the context of talent programs, and we need to make sure that people are understanding those nuances and catching where there are possibly examples of visa fraud. But besides that, a lot of these talent programs will actually tell you not to tell whoever you know your other employer is that you're doing this. One thing quickly, I would say、yeah. the other issue that comes up with talent programs is, at least in the United States, a lot of people end up being charged with misuse of grant money. Where a lot of the people in the United States, if they say they're part of a talent program or if they are part of a talent program or working at a Chinese university, 
and are simultaneously receiving grant money from the U.S. government, from NIH, DOE, things like that, that is another big issue. And China wants those people. China wants the professors and individuals that are connected to those different bodies of the U.S. government. They want that information. So that in itself is really problematic. I think your critiques are valid in the sense that, like, sure, there should be more transparency about these things. And, you know, if someone's going to have a affiliation with a Chinese university, like maybe they shouldn't get DARPA funding or whatever. But I think there's much more. So I think your interpretation is like a completely reasonable one. But it seems to me like the discourse in, in Congress and in other think tanks paints this in a far more nefarious light. And if your transparency things come through and okay, like someone can have an affiliation with a Chinese university and then they just won't get funding from the defense department or something like that seems like a reasonable solution, but I don't think that's where we're trending. And I think you're right. I think and it's funny you mentioned this. I wanted to tie back a bit to the presidential proclamation that came out back in May that was trying to restrict Chinese students and scholars coming on FNJ visas who are coming from universities or entities that are tied to the Chinese military. And there's something to be said about that. So there's something to be said, you know, people talk about the Seven Sons of National Defense, this group of seven Chinese universities that have historically been tied to the defense industry, the Chinese military, and are under the oversight of the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, which is the leader in MCF, Military Civil Fusion. However, it gets much more problematic when we start thinking about blocking individuals who are coming from things like Tsinghua or Beida or some of these other universities where, I mean, yes, they're the top universities in China and, you know, therefore probably going to be tied into the defense industry in some capacity. But that doesn't mean that we need to do a full kind of blanket ban on anyone coming from that university. I think like if you're going to draw the line of like, okay, we take money from the Defense Department. I don't know how many American universities are not going to make that list. Exactly. So, I mean, in that sense, I think, you know, there are problematic parts of Tsinghua and Beida and these other universities. But it needs to be much more of a targeted analysis of what specific parts of these universities are problematic. I don't see any problem with, okay, if you see this one you know, lab at Tsinghua, this one department is really, really tied to the PLA and you can prove that. I don't think there's a problem if, you know, someone from that lab or something or who was connected to that tries to come to the U.S. Not saying that you should ban them right away, but you might want to, you know, do a little bit more due diligence on them and maybe, yeah, maybe not have them employed at a lab that takes money from DOE or has a contract with DARPA or things like that. But I don't think it's a, it should be a, a, you know, yes or no, you can't come at all versus come on over kind of thing. I really think it requires much more, much more of a like due diligence style search to it. Yeah. It's, it's hard though, because when you start trying to be nuanced, so what happens? Like the consular agent who's 25 years old is now supposed to be reading dissertations and understanding to what extent this person is going to be able to turn what they've learned into something that's sort of dual use seven years exactly. down the road. It's it's hard and you sort it's understandable why if you're a policymaker who's concerned about this, you want to just draw the fence wider than it than yeah. it would be otherwise to make sure none of this sort of activity is happening. No, and no, it's really important because people are getting caught in the crossfire who don't deserve to be and exactly. should have every opportunity to, you know, learn the most they can about their molecules. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the one example that I say, well, backing up for a second. So I think I agree. And I think that, you know, the, the poor consular officers or the people working at DHS who are in charge of this, I think 
this is where people like myself and others in the think tank and kind of policy informing community need to really step it up and kind of provide these entities at state and DHS and throughout the government with very kind of objective, unbiased information about, okay, this is what is happening and lay it out for them and let them make the decisions, but provide them with the resources they need. Because I mean, there are cases that probably should have been caught. My, my favorite one to point out at this point is there was a DOJ indictment recently involving visa fraud, where someone on her visa in her interview or on her application said that she worked at Be- Beijing Diaoyutai Hospital. And I just, after this indictment came out, I did a quick search in Chinese of just Googling Beijing Diaoyutai Hospital. And it took me directly to the Air Force, like the PLA Air Force Hospital site. Like that was the first thing that came up. So that to me is something that's like, okay, come on. Like we should have been able to catch that. Someone should have done a bit more due diligence. Well, I mean, However, maybe she's going to nursing school, like whatever. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> but there should have been some more due diligence on the fact that, or she is a part of the PLA. Doesn't mean that she should necessarily be banned or not, but she did lie on her application and say that she was not associated with the PLA when clearly she was. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, but it goes back to, you know, a, a young consular officer who's checking over a visa thing. A, might not have the time to do this due diligence, and B, might not have oh, the Chinese totally. language ca- capabilities. So, I mean, it's we're, we're kind of shooting them in the foot here and that they don't really have the ability to vet these people as, eff- as effectively as they need to, but then we turn around and blame them. So it's it's like, it's I feel bad. We're, we're not giving them what they need. Yeah, and shout out to the Beijing embassy folks who listen to this podcast. Like, you guys are doing great. It's not your fault. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so... You know, an interesting question is, like, I'm waiting for one of these sort of talent tracker lists to put Yenching Academy and Schwartzman Scholars on it. And it hasn't happened yet. Probably happened at some point. But do you have a take on, you know, to what extent there these sorts of exchanges and programs should be considered in this vein. I mean, I I sort of feel bad for whoever funded, decide to fund Yenching Academy because I feel like they're really not getting a good return on their investment when it comes to me putting out this show. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, what should folks who are thinking about these programs keep in, keep in mind when trying to navigate through this morass of, you know, living in China and sort of everything being complicit, but at the same time, not wanting to, be part of a military civil fusion scheme, I guess. Yeah, no. Programs like Yenching and Schwarzman, I think, are awesome opportunities for people to live in China and you know learn in China. With that being said, going into it, you need to be prepared for, I think, what you might face. So one of the things that comes up a lot with Yenching, and I know this came out um, last summer, where there were issues with the FBI interviewing people who had uh, participated in Yenching or Schwarzman. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think if you're going to do this at this point because of the state of U.S.-China relations, you have to be, you know, okay with the possibility that the FBI might come and ask you some questions. They're not here to get you in trouble. They actually are there to protect you. They want to make sure that you weren't recruited by, you know, the Ministry of State Security, Ministry of Public Security. And I personally didn't have any experiences like that. But I know of friends and other acquaintances who were approached by people. So, you know, in, in that sense by all means, go ahead, live in Beijing, live in Shanghai, do whatever you want in China, but really just know that the U.S. government is probably keeping keeping an eye on you, but it's, again, mostly to protect you. So I, I like to point that out. So don't be afraid, you know, if, you know, someone from the FBI comes knocking on your door and just wants to ask you a few questions. But on the point of... Well, I mean... I mean, be a little afraid, I guess, if the FBI is knocking. But 
nine times out of 10, they are there just to gather intel and to learn some information. I, I laugh too. I had, I know people who in undergrad were, you know, approached by questionable things. And as, as you know, in undergrad, I look back at my, my time in Beijing in, in undergrad, I was very naive to these issues. I didn't receive any kind of education on ha- how to handle that or anything until I had hindsight. And I looked back on my time in China and I was like, oh, maybe that was kind of sketchy. I think Absolutely. that's something that Yenqing and Schwarzman and these other programs, even study abroad programs, you need to educate participants about these issues beforehand. So they're not kind of looking back and being like, oh, well, the program brought me to this event that was hosted by the Chinese government. And I met these people. And now five years later, I'm trying to apply for a clearance. And someone asked me about it in my polygraph. And I'm wholly unprepared to answer a question about it. The other thing that I want to point out, too, is China often will kind of co-opt these study abroad opportunities and put it and kind of tout it as a talent program. So the thing that I like to throw out for this example is if you actually look up like a list of Chinese talent programs, a lot of the times they will say that Fulbright is a Chinese talent program. It is not. And I actually made a very executive decision in creating this uh, talent tracker, talent program tracker for CSET to not include it because Fulbright just because the Ministry of Education in China helps with that exchange program, that does not mean it's a Chinese talent program. In fact, Fulbright, which unfortunately has been either you know canceled, suspended, I don't know what this current state of is current state of it is at this point as far as the U.S. China Fulbright, but that is such an important program. A lot of kids are a lot of kids are now going to Taipei. The ones who I mean, I will say stuff. fully, like fully love the idea of more people going to Taiwan. Military civil fusion. We're going to skip the intro, Emily. How can you think about what are the open source ways to get at how effective the program is? So I get a lot of questions about, is MCF successful? How is it going? Where's the progress? And it's something that's honestly hard to judge because you have people on, on one end of the spectrum saying it's not successful at all. And other people saying, oh my God, we should be terrified. It's been going so well. I kind of sit somewhere in the middle of that where I think, Yes, it has improved. And we can hit on this from like a language perspective, or we can hit on this from like an actual substantive perspective. I'll hit on the language thing quickly. The terms that have been used for military civil fusion have evolved since this was started by, I mean, it's been around since Mao, but it's now, it was kind of leveled up during the Hu Jintao era. And now Xi Jinping has put it to the national level. But the term has shifted from military civil integration to military civil fusion. And now recently we're seeing a shift to military civil solidarity or Junin Tuanjie, which in itself is kind of showing, okay, have we finished the, the the era of fusing everything and we're now at the point where things are you know, unified. Now we're we're all eating at the same table. Exactly. And we don't know if that's just like a a Xi Jinping decided that 2020 or 2021 is going to be the time when we shift the term. Or We don't know if this is a result of, you know, so much attention being given to the term military civil fusion in the U.S. that the Chinese have decided, okay, we need to change that term so it's not as noticeable, which is something we saw with Made in China 2025. We saw that term disappear. Thousand Talents has kind of disappeared as well. So it could be a factor of either of those. To hit on the more substantive end of military civil fusion, I would say that there are a few examples that I like to tout as far as how successful it's been. In the area of space, we've seen over the past maybe five-ish years, the emergence of these startup-y style private, I say private with quotations because I have a hard time determining if anything is a private company in the context of China as we see it at the US. But we've seen the emergence of these kind of like I said, startup-y small space companies 
that are really trying to be innovative, trying to be like uh, SpaceX. They all love SpaceX. They talk about SpaceX all the time. And they actually, if you look at Chinese literature, they tout SpaceX as like this amazing example of American military civil fusion. So the kind of emergence of these companies that resemble or are trying to resemble SpaceX to me is something that they're looking at the U.S. and being like, hey, they did that really well. Let's do that here. And obviously, I think that's taken a while. So seeing these companies actually come out, I know there are a few. They all have space in the name. Of course, I'm going to blank on. I know one of them is One Space. There's, I think there's Blue Space. There, there are a few others. A lot of them have come out of... If they if they went all the way up to ten, but no one did like ten space because we exactly. gotta like respect the Godfather. Exactly, but I would say actually the area where I see more of a problem with these space companies. So this is where I'm now. Why I'm in the middle of this kind of success and failure spectrum. The fact that these companies exist is great. Well, great for China in the sense that they are really doing well on military civil fusion space. However, these companies are not the same as like your startups in the U.S. A lot of these are tied to either big universities in China, like Tsinghua has one. A lot of things come out of your more traditional, like these Seven Sons universities. Beihang University does a lot on this. Northwestern Polytechnical University does a lot on this. But a lot of them come out of some of the big state-owned defense conglomerates, like Kask and Kasich, who have been involved in the space industry for decades. So the fact that they're subsidiaries of things like Kask and Kasich makes me kind of question whether they are actually this new innovative startup kind of company or if they're just kind of something on the surface, like a very aesthetic kind of, look, we can do something like SpaceX here. We're going to put this company out here, but it's not really going to do that much. And coming, coming back to the like U.S. comparison, you know, plenty of space defense startups have DARPA money and, exactly. you know, deal with the DIU and have this sort of funding. So I think the point at which people say, oh, this is really nefarious is like the part in whatever law where it says like any private company has to help us. And, you know, having having space startups like should not surprise anyone. And, and the fact that a government is sponsoring those is also like completely normal behavior for a very for a very large power. Right. But where we see the difference is the actual substantive products that are being put out. The, these Chinese companies now, it's, it's been a little while since I've looked at them, but a lot of them were kind of talking a lot about we have these great ideas for products. We have these great things, but there wasn't a lot of actual substance to what they were talking about. That's not the case with all of them, but and it could just also be because they're so new. But I think it, we need to keep an eye on those to see if they're just, you know, for example, selling a really new and innovative version of something that Cask was already making. To me, then, that's not something new and innovative, really. That's just the Chinese government trying to change perception of something like Cask and Kasich, which, at least in the U.S., people now recognize as pretty problematic. I mean, it, the, the frame is not just like, oh, we want to impress these Americans, right? Oh, no, it's not also at all. Like, it's also like we want to impress the engineer who may end up wanting to just go to the U.S. and work at SpaceX, right? Absolutely. So to like make the to, – to put to, to put a sheen on these companies as like, oh, yeah, they're still private sector. Like you can still wear – dress down and like you don't have to like report to like a 57-year-old like fat guy who smokes who has been in the party for, for his entire life and doesn't know anything about rocket ships. There's an aspect of that too, I'm sure, which I've read a little yes. bit in, um, yeah. uh, in, in Chinese media. It ties really you know, well back to the 
talent recruitment and this brain drain idea where China is trying to step away from their very traditional, you know, state-owned enterprise, big defense conglomerate companies that are less shiny, like you said, and trying to create these things that look like SpaceX or that look like these really innovative companies around the world so that they're able to keep talent from wanting to go and work elsewhere. Because a lot of young Chinese scientists and scholars are trying to look for those types of opportunities. They don't want to work for Cask or Kasich and, you know, a lab that's 30 years old in the basement somewhere. Like they want something that's new and shiny and fun. And yeah, so I think there's a bit of that as well. In this conversation, this is also sort of where we hit the limits of open source research because... I mean, presumably, if if DIA is doing anything, it's trying to understand, you know, how good these missiles are and like where yeah. the tech is coming from, right? And this is something where, you know, you can only go so far without, you know, being inside people's systems. Yes, I will say, though, and I, I brought this up earlier, but make sure if people are interested in this, make sure you're reading annual, annual reports of companies because I've been able to find... Um, I think this was covered actually last year, or I'm sorry, I'm losing track. Earlier this year, I published a report with my old colleagues at Point Bello and at Project 2049 on China's space and counter space capabilities. And we were able to actually locate like some of these companies in their annual reports specifically mentioned that they sold a piece of technology or did work with this unit of the PLA. And I don't know if people are aware of what an MUCD is, the military unit cover designations, but they're this set of six numbers that designate, you know, it's a code to be like, okay, you're, I work in this unit in this part of the PLA or whatever. And there's, again, I, I put, I, Mark Stokes gets all the credit on MUCDs and, and some of his friends. Uh, he is the king of understanding those, but they label these in annual reports to the level of the MUCD. So if you're interested in learning more about like, you know, are these people selling to the PLA open source, you can find that in annual reports. I also want to shout out Corey Fitz's newsletter, Tyco Nautica, which is uh, T-A-I-K-O-N-A-U-T-I-C-A dot substack dot com, who is who's been writing great stuff about the Chinese space industry and will be coming on this podcast sooner rather than later. So what else doesn't the West understand about MCF? So one idea that I think is still gaining traction is this this idea that military civil fusion you know, there's a big emphasis on, okay, China calls it Jun Min Ronghe. The Jun, the military is first, and that's the priority. So everything is being funneled into the military. That is not actually the case. And I think this is super important to think about in the context of MCF, is that technologies from the military are also being spun off to the commercial sector. There's this term in Chinese, they talk about spinning on and spinning off. So we've got spin on to the military, spin off to the commercial sector. And we're seeing this a lot. You know, it's not necessarily the case where it's like, okay, Something didn't work out for the military, so we're just going to throw it to the commercial sector so we don't lose it. That is the case in some of the spinning off. But some of it is recognizing the dual-use capabilities of a technology, where it goes to the military and the military is like, oh, this is great, but like we should also give this to the commercial sector, A, so it can become more competitive, and B, just because it, it can be useful in other contexts. So I think that's something that we need to pay attention to more when it comes to military civil fusion. And again, as important as that military side is to it, the fact that China is putting some of these technologies then into the commercial space too has a number of implications for people in the US and others around the world who are trying to work with some of these commercial entities. Because, you know, God forbid you end up working with a company that is getting technology or information funneled straight to it from the PLA. No one wants to find themselves in that position. Also, this new idea that's been coming out of this current administration in the US is this idea that 
anything because military civil fusion is so successful at blurring the lines between what is military and what's civilian that everything in china is dangerous everything is tied to military civil fusion everything you know we can't do you know it's it they make it seem very black and white and it's not and you know i i do agree with the point that military civil fusion is very well intertwined throughout chinese the chinese economy and everything like that but i don't necessarily think that it's a yes or no kind of thing i think it's more of a spectrum and that if we want to work with certain chinese entities we need to have a better risk assessment or risk indicators laid out as far as who to collaborate with who to work with because there are things that are more on the low risk end that i think we need to continue collaboration on for example one of the things that i like to throw out is in artificial intelligence china has done some amazing work integrating ai into their medical imaging software and this has come up in the context of covid and to me i'm like that that's fantastic we need some of that we need to help doctors make diagnoses more efficient and more effective and things like that but you know i yeah, mean was, ai is yeah yeah it was it was funny because like i remember i i read that i read that report of yours and i was just thinking like AI is not the reason why China doesn't have COVID right now. And AI is not going to be the reason why America doesn't have COVID in six months. Yep. So it, it's interesting because like there were all these cool little applications you, you highlighted all of which are sort of like completely benign. Well, well, it's not just benign, so. but just like beside the point. I mean, the yep. country shut down, no one left their house for two months and, and then that the virus discussed. basically goes away. Yep. It's like, Okay. Yeah. I don't know. We're in New York City right now and the schools are closed and I can walk around my corner and still see people sitting within three feet of each other. And it pisses me off um, yeah. in a yep. restaurant where everyone's drunk and screaming. So, yep. Yeah. No. And that's why it's also fun to take, you know, you have to make sure you're taking into account the context of these stories that come out of the Chinese government where, you know, in this case, I was doing a review of a report that came out of a Ministry of Industry and Information Technology think tank. So you have to kind of step back and be like, okay, they're not going to actually talk about some of the bigger, more controversial issues. They're going to tout things that they think are like, you know, on the more benign side that they think, oh, look at how awesome this is. You know, one of the examples was they were using little robots to like deliver food to people in hospitals. <laughs> like, that's great. But like that, you know, th did we really need that during COVID? I mean, no, it's helpful, but not really. So yeah, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a side note, but I think you're right in that China likes to, you know, thro throw out these, excuse me, these great examples, but we have to make sure that we're not over praising them for these. Emily Weinstein, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you for having me.
My in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over, and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.